The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. This is Writing Class Radio. I'm Andrea Askowitz, your host and your teacher. I know what you're thinking. Who is this person? Why is she qualified to teach a writing class? I want to answer that. A few months ago, I went to my 25th Penn reunion, and I was walking down campus with my friend Meredith Steam, who's one of the best writers in Hollywood. She created Cold Case, and now she writes for Homeland. She's big time. So as we walked down campus, all these memories came up. I was like, Meredith, oh my god, that's the frat house where I fooled around with that guy under the keg table. But most of my memories were like, oh no, there's the tutoring center. That's the writing lab. That's where I wrote that Russian history paper and got a D. Then remember you helped me and my professor raised my grade to a C minus? Meredith was like, wow, how did you learn to write? I'm telling you this because one thing I want to stress is that anyone can learn to tell a story. If I can, you can. A few years later, I went to grad school at GW for public policy because I had big plans to save the world. I had this teacher, Jill Castle, who made us write an essay every week and then stand in front of the class and deliver it. She'd mark on the blackboard every time someone said, um, or any of the other words she hated. She hated pronouns. So while we were telling our stories, we'd hear her chalk, whack, whack, and then she'd yell at us, hands at your sides, feet parallel. It was total boot camp, and I loved it. I don't know if I was any better at writing as a grad student, but Jill Castle taught me real ways to improve, and she taught me how fun it could be to tell a story. After I graduated, I wrote a novel, which is buried somewhere on my computer. And then a few years later, after failing to save the world, I started taking writing seriously. I mean, I started writing every day. Mostly every day. I joined a writing class that met once a week, taught by Terry Silverman. I was living in L.A. at the time, far from home, and this class became my community. I learned a lot about writing. Mostly that you have to practice a lot. And that having a deadline and an audience every week is a real motivator. I learned to write like I speak, which is how I know that if you can speak, you can write. I took Terry Silverman's class for eight years in a row. I got pregnant during that period on my own. I was alone and about to become a single mom. And I had what I found out later was hormone-induced depression. So I was miserable. Except for my job, my class was the only thing I left the house for. What kept happening is that I'd write something I swore I'd never share with anyone except my class. The weird thing was, the worse the situation felt to me, the funnier it felt to my classmates. One low moment was when a male friend offered to give me a massage. I'm a lesbian, but loneliness had made me desperate. So the guy comes over and I light candles and play a mix CD, which a friend made for me called How to Get Laid by the Fifth Song.
So I'm lying there on my bed and he's rubbing me all over and I say, do you want to take your shirt off? He says, no. 10 minutes later, he's massaging my butt and I say, do you want to take your shirt off? He says, no. Then when he's massaging the inside of my thighs, I say, do you want to take your shirt off now? And he's like, no, I'm good. And then he leaves. When I read this story to my class, my classmates were crying laughing. I had been crying too. But then I realized, oh wait, this is funny. I kept bringing in these kinds of stories, and this became my first book, My Miserable, Lonely, Lesbian Pregnancy. It's a comedy. Nine years ago, I moved back to Miami, where I grew up, and started Lip Service. Lip Service is a night of true stories. It's a quarterly show where eight people, one at a time, tell a true personal story. It's grown into a giant show with 600 people in the audience every time. In the last nine years, I've edited more than 300 stories. Lip Service taught me how to edit, and writing is editing. And then six years ago, I wanted to create the community I had in L.A., and so I started teaching a writing class. Allison was in my first class and has been signing up every semester ever since. About two years ago, she came to me with this idea to write a book about our class. I was like, uh, a book? I wasn't that into it because I'm still rewriting my last finished book. And while I love books, writing a book is like running a marathon. Alone. With no one at the finish line. Except maybe your mom, if she's not too busy. So Allison came back with the idea of creating a podcast. And I was like, yeah! All these crazy characters, their sordid lives, the in-class drama, the crying, the resistance, the connections. Yes! Let's put these characters and their stories out there. So I asked Allison some questions, including what's kept her coming back to class for six years. But when we recorded her in the studio, her kitchen, she kind of got stage fright. Turns out it's harder than we thought to sound natural with a mic in your face. So after the 47th take... Oh my God, it's fine. Again, one more time. Fuck you, it's fine. Diego... Our audio producer and I sent her home. Allison sent me this recording, which she did on her iPhone, with her answers. Well, to be honest, I stay because I need it. I love Wednesdays. I think about those three hours all week, and it really keeps me going. Um, it's, and it's the only place I can be me. All right. Well, that's not, that's not completely true. I mean, I have great friends, real friends where I can be me, but I have to still be strong and in control when I'm out in public. Um, I'll tell my friends that I yelled at Sloan, maybe even so much that I had to apologize. It's so dumb. He's five. Anyway, um, they say how they get mad too. And we move on to something else. Um, in class, there are details, like real ugly details. It's not a great story unless the narrator reveals just how ugly she can be. Actually, you taught me that. You know, also the prompts really do help. They pull up memories that are buried, 
probably for good reason. But somehow getting it down on paper really helps. It's like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And people comment as if you're not in the room. They rework your story while you're sitting there listening. You can't, they're talking about it and how great it would be if it, if, if it, there were more pain. And can you just tell them about more of your pain? And by the time it's done, <laughs> um, it's more than a paper full of pain. In that first class, you gave us the prompt love. And I thought, I'm not telling these people about my shitty love life. So I wrote about my dog, Molly. And you were like, uh, I don't think so. You need to get personal. And then you saw the toy drive in honor of McLean on my website. And you said, have you lost a daughter? And I burst into tears. And you said, I think that's the story you have to tell. But I didn't want to tell that story. I was afraid that I would always be that person people whispered about. Hey. That's the woman who lost a child. I wanted to go beyond just that label. And by telling the story, at least in my own mind, I have. Here's Allison Langer reading the story she came to tell in her first writing class. Every Sunday morning, when my dad comes over to get the kids, I send him off to the country club with someone missing. Sometimes I go too. It was a gradual return. One day, I drove into the parking lot. The next time, I got out of the car. After a year, I approached the front door. Baby steps, I told myself. Finally, 21 months after the accident, I walked into the country club and sat down at a table, completely out of view of the table where my 16-month-old daughter ate her last meal. My children sat across the table from me. My dad chose the chair to my right where he could avoid direct eye contact. It was not my dad's first day back to the club, so it was my turn to be observed. I felt like I would always be known as the mother who lost a child. The memory came back clear and swift. My then three-year-old son, Jackson, and 16-month-old identical twin girls, Blake and McLean, and I paraded through the dining room. We stopped a few times to greet friends so I could show off my gaggle. Jackson was wearing khaki shorts and a dark blue and white striped shirt. Usually underdressed and mismatched, today I had the girls in twin outfits. The white cotton capri pants were soft and flowing, and the carnation pink spaghetti strap shirts gathered just below the chest and flowed out empire style. I know this for two reasons. While we were waiting for Blake to get up from her nap, I snapped a photo of Jackson and McLean with my dad's new Blackberry and stored it as his screensaver. And because I will never forget how abruptly that shirt fell off the exam table in the emergency room after the scissors sliced, sliced up the middle. That was the first and last time those shirts ever got worn. I wore white shorts and a pink short sleeve Lacoste. The matchy-matchiness of all our clothes was my way of making fun of the outfits usually seen there. That afternoon in the emergency room, I focused on my shorts as my head hung forward in my hands. 
My family was enjoying lunch at the country club. I was talking to a friend of my dad's when McLean began her choking routine. This has been going on since she started eating solids around six months. She would gag a little on her food. I'd pat her on the back and the chunk of ground beef or a slice of tangerine or ball of watermelon would pop out. She would get frightened and cry and grasp for air. At first, it scared the shit out of me. I wrote down all the food she had trouble with. Bread, meat sauce, spaghetti, peanuts. But always, the food came right back up, so I just settled into a worried calm. When I mentioned this in her heavy breathing to our pediatrician, Dr. Kramer, he seemed unalarmed, but concerned that her heavy breathing had not subsided with age. So at 15 months, he explained that she might have a vascular ring and recommended a cardiologist. It was no big deal, he said. People live with these things for years. The cardiologist confirmed the diagnosis on a Friday, explaining the ring was wrapped around her esophagus and was constricting her eating and breathing. After the very simple operation, she would be perfect. I scheduled McLean's surgery for the following Friday, October 10th, 2008. I was worried about the anesthesia, the stay in the hospital, my other kids, but I was happy to know she would be fine. Two days later, and five days before her scheduled surgery, we went to the club for lunch. McLean was in her high chair on my left, and Blake was in a high chair on my right. Jackson was in a booster seat beside Blake. When I saw Mackie choking, I jumped up and pulled her out and patted her on the back. Jackson came running over. He liked to help. But this time, nothing came out. I looked at her face, and the panic in her eyes made me stiffen and yell. I cannot remember what came out of my mouth, but it made the lunch chatter stop and my son cry. I hit her back harder as I angled her slightly downward, trying to remember what they taught us in CPR class. Mackie turned blue. Dad yelled for a doctor. A woman ran over, grabbed my daughter, and turned her upside down, which I knew was wrong. I ran for my phone and stared at it in shock. Very slowly, I found the numbers. I pushed nine, then one, then one. I told the operator that my daughter was choking and we needed an ambulance fast. Two doctors ran over. When one of the men put his fingers in her mouth, she began seizing. He asked me if she had seizures, and I shook my head. Help her, I pleaded. The paramedics arrived within minutes and stuck a needle in her leg. They pushed something down her throat to look inside. One said, she's clear. They asked for the mother, and I knelt down to breathe into her mouth, as instructed. When that didn't help, They bagged her and started chest compressions. I called my pediatrician and left word with the service. After less than five minutes, they carried my limp daughter to the rescue truck. They said I could ride in the truck with them, but not in the back. I whisper over and over, please no, please no. The emergency room was empty when we arrived. They sat me on a chair in front of the double doors that led to my daughter. I gazed down at my white shorts. A woman came over and I lifted my head slightly to look at her. She said she was a liaison. I asked her if I could go in the room with my daughter. I wanted to see what was happening. I wanted to hold her hand in case she was scared. I told the woman that I didn't want my daughter to die alone. I waited for her to tell me that she was just fine and would not die. But instead, she nodded. She opened one of the doors and motioned for me to come in. 
At least 10 people stood over my daughter, each doing a job. There was a lady pumping air through a large ball into a mask that lay over McLean's nose and mouth. There was a man pushing on her chest. There was someone giving her a shot every few minutes and looking at a machine. I asked no one in particular if she was breathing on her own, and the lady with the ball shook her head. Heartbeat? I asked, and again she shook her head. I reached for my daughter's tiny, limp hand, and I said, Please, Mackie, please don't give up. Mommy's here, and I love you so much. Please don't leave me. I need you here with us. Fight. You can do this. Do this for me. I need you. I love you. Please. The doctors and nurses did not say a word. They did not rush me in any way. Neither did they shield me from their words. I heard someone say, 25 minutes, one more try, and okay, we've got a pulse. Oh, thank God. I said, thank you, God. They moved her to cardiology intensive care unit and lay her on an ice pack that cooled her 22-pound body so her organs could rest and heal. She was hooked up to IV monitors and a ventilator. The machines beeped constantly, indicating something important to the nurse who stayed by her side. She was in a coma. My dad arrived to sit with me. He, left the, he had left the kids with Marta, my nanny. Up to this point, I had remained calm. But when he told me that my mom was on her way from North Carolina, I dropped into a chair and cried. My dad sat down on the arm of the chair, wrapped his arms around me, and cried right there with me. Mom arrived three hours later. We were not close. She didn't approve of me having a baby using an anonymous sperm donor. So I was three months pregnant with Jackson before I told her the news. Don't you care what people think? She asked. Not at all, I said. I just want to be a mom. She had come to Miami once or twice to visit with Jackson, but she and I barely spoke. When the twins were born, she waited months before coming to meet them. She didn't really know my kids, but she was here now and I needed her. She sat with me in that cold, sterile, beeping room. They brought in a chair for her and we sat side by side, crying and hugging. Mackie was moved into the pediatric intensive care unit because although her original problem was a cardio thing, her current problem was survival. Mackie was next to a little boy who would choke on his phlegm, thrash around, then get suctioned by a nurse. He had no visitors because I was told his parents work long hours. He seemed really bad off. I felt sorry for him. The little girl on the other side had a respiratory virus. Her mom was at her side every time I looked over. She was on a ventilator. They put her on a heart-lung bypass machine. We shared food and became PICU friends. I thought her daughter was worse off, and I really felt sorry for her. The first night in the PICU, I slept in a very uncomfortable chair right next to McLean's bed. The next night, I slept in my own bed, and that was even worse. I didn't like being so far away from Mackie's bed. The following three nights, I slept in the hospital, and my mom slept in my bed. She took the kids to school, went to the grocery store, and kept the house running. 
My friend Carrie, who lives in San Diego with her husband and four children, arrived on day three. We've been best friends since high school. When I called her from the rescue truck, she offered to get on the next flight. I told her I would call her if she needed to come. When she arrived, I felt like everything would be okay. She calmed me. She told me that McLean would come back if she got her brain back. I believed her. My close friends arrived in the morning and stayed all day into the night. Clients and people I didn't even think liked me showed up to offer support. They took over the waiting room, the conference room, and the PICU. The hospital administrator loaned us a small private room where we could gather and where Carrie and I slept. Each day at four, I went home to see Blake and Jackson. I gave them baths, read to them, and sang songs on their beds. Then I showered, put on my sweats, my oil of Olay night cream, and went back to the hospital. Matt was also with us. He's an anesthesiologist. We met 10 years earlier when he was in med school, and I would walk my puppy Molly behind his house. When he heard Mackie was in the hospital, he came right over. He became my medical advisor. When they wanted to put her on heart-lung bypass, he spoke with the doctors and then explained why that was not a good idea. He didn't believe in prolonging a life not worth having. Allison, he said, you need to understand what is going on. You're not being realistic. I have hope, I said. I believe in miracles. It's not going to happen. You need to be aware. You don't know that for sure. I do know that. She was with oxygen, without oxygen for almost 30 minutes. If she were older, she would have pronounced dead on arrival. That night, Carrie lay next to me and held me until I stopped shaking long enough to fall asleep. The next day, day five, the doctors removed the cold pack to see if she would come out of the drug-induced coma. The EEG revealed some brain activity, but how much was unknown. When her eyelids were lifted, her pupils were dilating. The doctors said that they needed a few hours to see what she would do. I called Matt. That's not a good sign, he said. She's hemorrhaging. He left work immediately to be with us. They moved McLean to the private grieving room so we could say goodbye. As I followed the bed, I looked for my picky friend. She was by her daughter's bed. The little girl was still on the bypass machine and hooked up to an EEG. I was sure she would die too, but I was later told she made it home safely. The little boy with no visitors was gone. As I entered McLean's new room, I motioned to Carrie to keep everyone out, and I climbed on her bed. I moved the tubes to the side, held her, and sobbed. I breathed in her delicious skin and held my lips to her cheek. I told her how much I loved her and would miss her. I sang our usual tunes and assured her I would be okay. I forgave her for leaving us. Then I got off the table and walked to the nurse. I said, I'd like to donate her organs. She led me back into the room with a pair of scissors, a clear plastic bag, a yellow piece of construction paper, and a navy ink pad. I cut a lock from my little girl's shiny blonde hair, stamped her handprint on the paper, and kissed my baby for the last time. A few doctors came to say goodbye. 
Matt, Carrie, my dad, and mom were there. I was told that my daughter would be left on life support for 48 hours, enough time to find donors for her viable organs. I did not want to stay. I let her go, and I walked out of the hospital without my daughter. Thank you for reading that story. Really, thank you. Well, thanks for pulling it out of me. I would never have written it if it wasn't for the class. The whole class you kept saying, you have to write about the thing you don't want to write about. Then on the last day, it was my turn to read, and I knew I couldn't bring in another Molly story. I titled my story, The Hardest Thing in the World to Write About, and I just did it. Flying fortress of plastic dreams Red pen canvas is fire It seems To hear what Allison's writing today, listen to more Writing Class Radio. Also, this semester coming up, Anessa turns 40 and buys more time to find the dream. You know the prince? That dream. Danny, who's 29, comes clean after deceiving two lovers and himself. And Bo, a Southern Christian gay man, confronts homophobia. His own. Writing Class Radio is produced by Diego Saldana Rojas, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Astromaps. Writing Class Radio is recorded at the University of Miami School of Communications. And there's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com. Study the stories we study. Listen to our craft talks. Write your own stories. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, Anyone can be a cash kid. 
You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.